Hi, I'm Kat. And I'm Emma. If you love the Dead Prank podcast, you can help support its future using the ACAST supporter feature. Now, it's up to you how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So if you can and you want to, please do hit the link in the show description to support now. Thank you. Thank you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to the Deborah and Club podcast a community of like-minded young adults who are all grieving a similar loss. I'm Catherine Hooker and I speak with inspirational people from all over the world whose lives have been impacted from losing a parent at a young age. In this podcast, our guests will tell their own grief story, discussing how their losses have impacted their lives and the past they have found themselves on. We laugh, we cry, but together we've come to realise that we are far from alone in our own grief journeys. When you experience death at a young age, I think it, it enlightens you to appreciate life a little bit more. You're going to take a little bit more time to smell the roses. You're going to take a little bit more time to acknowledge things. And if you can rebound from the traumatic death of a loved one, especially a parent, in a positive light, um, you're going to be stronger for it. And I think, like for me, I'm... I, I self-admit this all the time that I am so focused on my life and time with my kids that it's could almost be almost be viewed as like a negative just because it's in the forefront of my mind of what I went through and I'm like I want to leave no doubt someday that when when I die that my kids know 100% that I loved them and and I cherish every moment with them and my whole like I just constantly think about what experiences can I give them? Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Dead Prank Club podcast. I hope you are all well. So that was a snippet from this week's episode with guest Patrick O'Neill. Patrick is from Phoenix of Arizona, and he had lost both of his parents by the age of 23, making him what we like to call a platinum member of the DPC. His mum died very suddenly while they were on a night dive together and his dad passed shortly after being diagnosed with lung cancer when he was just 23. In this week's episode, we hear about the circumstances leading toward his parents' passing and whether he dealt with his grief differently as a 23-year-old adult compared to when his mum died as a teenager. We also discuss why he's recently started sharing his story more often and the stigma surrounding men that's grieving. Patrick has an incredibly positive and admirable outlook on his life and he is a loving father and husband. You guys are going to absolutely love this episode and the important message that he has to tell. If you'd like to support the running of the podcast, you can do so by clicking the link in my show notes. Any help will go towards keeping the podcast going for as long as possible. Thank you so much. Stay safe and I will see you next week. Perfect. Um, thank you so much, Patrick, for coming on to the podcast. I am obviously super grateful. Um, 
I have a really good feeling about this episode. I feel like it's going to be really good. You're, you're, I can tell you're like a really friendly person, so it's going to be oh, fab. Thank you. Um, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself to the listeners, so your name, kind of like where you're from, just a little bit about your background so that they can get an idea of who you are. Okay, yeah. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for this opportunity. I think this is tremendous what you're doing. Um, so my name is Patrick O'Neill. I am a 39-year-old uh, father of two married. And I'm a captain with the Phoenix Fire Department in Phoenix, Arizona. I've lived here my entire life. So I'm mm. used to just dry, arid heat. and <laughs> um, So different from the UK. <laughs> yeah, we, we always like to say it's a dry heat. But when it's 115 and it's dry, it's pretty miserable. <sighs> so, yeah. um, so if you wouldn't mind kind of telling us about your individual losses then and kind of provide a bit of a brief insight into how they happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I lost both my parents by the time I was 23. Um, my mom was very unexpected. I was 15 years old, a freshman in high school. And my dad was, um, kind of expected and he died when I was 23. And I say it was kind of expected. I'll, I'll go into a little bit of details about that, but I, I unfortunately had, the experience of both parents, one to a cancer and one that was just like super traumatic and unexpected. Um, yeah. So that, that was your mom, wasn't it? Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, I'll try to get through this as quick as possible because it is a little bit of a story, but, um, my mom and I started scuba diving when I was 13. She was completely in love with the ocean, loves absolutely everything about the ocean. And um, I am deeply connected to the ocean because of her and how she died. Um, so when I was 13, we got scuba certified and we would go down to Rocky Point, Mexico, which is in the Baja Peninsula and do a lot of our dives there because it's a quick four hour drive from Phoenix. And you can see... Um, there's some salt water and you're not just doing freshwater lakes like in Arizona. So, um, we had been diving for a couple of years. We decided that we would, um, escalate our diving experience and try to get, uh, certified for advanced dive certification. And one of the things that you had to do for that was, uh, you had to do a night dive. And so mm. we did practice dives during the day and this was March 29th of 1996. So I was a freshman in high school. We were on spring break and um, we were down in Rocky Point and we did a practice dive during the day. And for the night dive, you had to do a course where you went out um, underwater using a compass, your watch and your regulator that told you how much air you had. And you would chart out a line, you know, a few hundred meters off the shore, come up for air. Um, have a little talk in, in the water with our, our dive group, go back underwater and we would go back. So mm -hmm. we practiced it during the day without any incident. Um, then it came time to do the night dive portion. And I think our night dive started around 1030 at night. And for the first time ever, my mom and I were paired up as dive partners. And um, which means that we were on the buddy system. She was my buddy and I was her buddy. If something happened, she yeah. was to, we were supposed to converse back and forth and help each other. Uh, we entered off of a boat ramp um, in Rocky Point, and so uh, we walked out on the water, went underwater. We scuba dived out as a group. Um, we got to our turnaround point, and underwater, we decided that we would um, not surface, but we were going to do our communications underwater and just kind of hang out. 
Mm. And um, turn around and head back on the same line. Well, shortly after she um, gave me the, like she tapped my arm or something and gave me the sign that she was low on air. And I looked at her regulator. I saw that she was low on air. I turned around to look at the dive group and see where they were at. And they had disappeared. Um, they were oh, swimming underwater. The, the clarity of the water was pretty minimal. I mean, you could luckily see 10 to 12 feet on a good day in Rocky Point. Being a night dive, mm-hmm. less than that. So they were gone. And then I turned around to look for my mom and she was gone. And, and I had no idea where she went. But our diving instructions taught us, hey, if you ever have a situation come up, you need to surface to the top of the water immediately and get your bearings and see if you can locate your dive partner. So I swam to the surface. I found my mom up there. She was panicking a little bit. She was trying to get her uh, buoyancy compensator vest, which is called a BC for short to stay inflated. And for some reason she would inflate it and it would deflate, inflate it, deflate. And um, so I swam over to her. I filled my BC up and it, mine worked fine. So we, um, got to her and I couldn't get hers to stay up. It kept deflating for some reason. Um, so she was kind of panicking a little bit. Um, she was 52 at the time. She had just gotten a physical the week before had been cleared for good health and everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, I ended up pulling her up on top of me cause I could tell she had a lot of anxiety. She was feeling stressed. So I just pulled her up on top of me and I was like, Hey, all right, we can see the strobe light on the boat ramp. So let's start kicking towards it. And that's what we're going to do. Yeah. So, um, as we started moving, um, she was just talking, having fun, talking about the octopus we saw under the water, the phosphorescence from our flashlights, um, the stingrays. We saw tons and tons of stingrays that night. Um, and she was just talking about it. And I was meanwhile, swallowing mouthful after mouthful of salt water. My head was being pushed underwater. I couldn't decide if I wanted my regulator in or not. Um, meanwhile, every now and then I turn around to see if our dive group had surfaced. They had not. Um, and we were going and I was just paddling with her from that to that strobe light on the beach. And, um, several minutes had gone by and I'm not really sure about how far we out we were, but I'm pretty sure we went, um, probably close to six to 800 meters out. So, wow. Yeah. It's pretty um, far. Probably about a half mile out. And, um, mm. One of the times that I turned around and looked for the dive group to see if they came up, um, like I said, my mom, she was talking fine, no complaints. All of a sudden, she just went limp and lifeless. And it's a weird feeling because I, I can honestly look back on it now and say that I felt, I felt the moment that she died because with all of her weight on top of me, I couldn't see her face. I couldn't see if she was breathing. I couldn't do anything. But all of a sudden, I was just like, something changed. And when I turned back around, her arms were just floating. Her legs were floating. And immediately, my mind went. And I knew something really, really bad happened. And I immediately assumed that my mom had just died. So I pulled her back up on top of me. And I was like, what do I do? I kind of panicked. And I just started kicking back. I'm like, I, I got to get her back to, to shore. So I started kicking and I was frantically looking over my shoulder to see when the other dive group came up. And I'm not really clear on how much time had passed, but we had swam for a while before the rest of the dive group came up. Finally, they came up and I screamed, 
at the top of my lungs. I need help. My mom, she died and they came over. Then they assisted. They wanted me to like swim to the beach, but I didn't want to leave her. I was kind of torn because, you know, I was like, I I just didn't want to leave her side. You must Uh, have been exhausted at that point as well. Yeah. And it was kind of a blur, honestly. Um, Just kind of going off of adrenaline, not sure what to do. So finally Mm -hmm. I, I conceded to their demands and I swam to the beach. Um, Some lady draped her towel around me, pulled me out, got all my dive gear off. By then I turned around and they were dragging my mom's body out of the surf, got her on the boat ramp in which then they did CPR on her for about 25 to 30 minutes. Um, Mexico being the country that it is, trying to get somebody to call 911, get an ambulance over there was um, not the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. So finally, when an ambulance did show up, they they were pretty much useless. Um, The guys got out, they threw some really rudimentary um, airway equipment to the okay. dive instructor and they didn't even do anything. They didn't even like take over and try to assist or do anything. So my dive instructor and one of the other guys were frantically trying to figure out how to put together the, the bag valve mask and hook it up to her face. And at this point, you know, after, after about 20 minutes, she finally threw up. And at some, at some point I thought maybe, Whoa, this is going to be all over and we're just going to laugh about this later on. But it never was the case. She never woke up. And after about 25 minutes, she was gone. They, they kind of ushered me to the side. And then all of a sudden, uh, the next thing I remember is they asked if I wanted to say goodbye to my mom real quick. And I didn't really understand what that meant. And by now they had her loaded up in the back of this dark ambulance. And since it was Mexico, they didn't have an ambulance with a light in the back apparently. So I was just in this like dark, empty ambulance with her in which I, that was my, chance to say goodbye to her and the next time I would see her after that was uh in her funeral which we had an open casket and then we ended up getting her cremated and uh we snuck over to California and secretly spread her ashes in the beach because California is full of crazy laws and rules so we put all of her ashes in a bunch of sandwich baggies and everybody snuck down to the beach one by one and just kind of <laughs> emptied my mom out on the sand in the in, oh. in the surf <laughs> Just because we knew that she loved the ocean and that's where she wanted to be. So, so we did everything we could to make that happen. So do they know what happened then? Like why she was obviously, you know, at one point talking to you and, you know, compass and the next she wasn't. So that's, that's one of the most frustrating parts about my mom's passing was, um, things became political. So, um, in Mexico, they weren't going to release her body back to the United States without doing an autopsy down there. So they performed an autopsy and when they did, they embalmed her and by embalming, they didn't send any of her organs back to the States with her. So, um, we couldn't get like a secondary opinion in the U S because I don't know. Uh, that's why I said it got political. They started, um, jacking around with us and wanting more and more money to release her body. I think at one point, I think we started out at $500 to get her body released across the border. And at some point we're up to like three or $4,000. And then we had to, we had to like barter and negotiate. And finally we got them down to, I want to say maybe we only only paid $1,500. It's just insane. Like you have to pay so much money just to get your mom back home. Like, yeah. And, And so like I was a single child and my dad, 
who lived in Nevada at the time because they were divorced. Um, so I had a, you know, the night my mom died, I had to, we went back to the dive shop and we called my dad and he answered the phone and we had to tell him, Hey, Maureen passed away. My dad wanted to know what happened. I told him briefly over the phone and then it was kind of a mad rush to get me to Tucson airport where my dad would fly in, give him my car or my mom's car with me in it and our belongings. And then we went back to Phoenix and then we had to negotiate, you know, getting my mom's body back with a funeral home and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was just like a week of just what the hell just happened. I, I yeah. was totally, um, challenged with a lot of different things and 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 I held on to some resentment towards Mexico for a long time because of some of that stuff yeah I bet you know mm-hmm. just like who does that and and unfortunately because they did the autopsy to answer your original question I never got a true answer um mm-hmm. I think their death certificate said that she asphyxiated on her own vomit and that was the cause of death but being a paramedic firefighter and witnessing you know all different types of respiratory arrest cardiac arrests um, everything she threw up after 20 minutes of CPR, which is pretty common. And so the yeah. fact that she just had vomit in her airway was enough for them to say, Oh, this well, that doesn't, doesn't account for her dying. Does it when, Oh my God. Yeah. So based off my knowledge now, I think, I think she either had like a pulmonary embolism or she might've had just a massive coronary event. Um, mm. because literally she didn't have one single complaint. She was, she was talking about, how beautiful the walk, the ocean was. And I was sucking in mouthfuls of salt water thinking I was the one that was going to drown. And then all of a sudden she was just, she was just gone. Yeah. So who did you kind of lean on for support after that? Or did you even like, did, would you kind of, um, did, did you acknowledge your grief at all as a teenager, you know, or was it just kind of like adrenaline constantly? Um, so my dad, since he lived in another state, he lived in Nevada at the time. Um, the town he lived in was not a good town for me to go move to. So everybody kind of agreed that I should just stay in Arizona. Um, and not having any brothers or sisters, I just kind of was like, well, where are we going to go? And so some family friends had offered for me to stay with them the rest of my freshman year of high school. And then that summer I would go with my dad. Um, and then come back and then try to figure out where I was going to live, I guess, for the next three years of high school. Mm. So I moved in with, uh, one family initially, they had a daughter that was my age that I grew up going to school with. Their dad owned a carpet cleaning company that I worked for. The mom was friends with my mom and they were a couple blocks away from our house. So it seemed like a good place to finish out my freshman year. So I moved in with them and they got me in touch with like a family friend or coworker that had some sort of like Christian church background with something in counseling. I met with him a couple times and because it wasn't like a formal process, that was pretty much it. Um, my dad being the old cowboy type that he was, um, you know, he was born in 1933 so he was like coming off the depression in his early years, witnessed World War II with older siblings going over to fight in Europe, all kinds of stuff. He, he, he told me at one point in the days after my mom died, he said, you know, son, you're a man now. You're, you're going to be on your own and you can't cry about this. Oh, and so oh the moment he said that, you know, my, me being a boy and my dad is everything that I look up to for that male figure. I was just mm-hmm. like, okay. So 
openly, I, I don't think I cried after that other than at my mom's funeral. Um, wow. the rest of it was kind of just on me. I, I started to want to get back to cross country and track because that was where I felt comfortable and mm, it became a, like a very, release, a huge release. Are you kidding me? Just being able to go out and run for miles on end and just run through those emotions. And there were times when I'd be running on the canals here in Arizona by myself and I, tears would just be running down my face. And I processed a lot of the grief myself that way. Um, but yeah, there was no formal counseling. And it's funny now because I look back and I'm like, if <laughs> if that happened to one of my kids, I would be like, you are going to serious counseling because that's, oh not, my God, absolutely. that's not a normal event it's for a kid to deal with. It's like a, like a horror story, you know, like something so traumatic happened to you on your own in a foreign country without anybody else with you. Like, holy shit. Exactly. <laughs> How terrifying. And wow. You know, um, one of the things that I've noticed and I've been able to process over the years that helped me, and it's kind of, I feel like I'm kind of propelled to be on this journey now because a lot of people, when they hear about the story of how my mom died, a lot of people's first reaction is like, oh my God, I had no idea. I've known you for so many years and how are you so normal? You know, they're like, why are you so optimistic? You know, and and then people tell me, they're like, hey, you should write down your story. And I've always kind of discounted it. And I'm like, no, it's it's not that big of a deal. But if, if somebody came and told me my story was their story, I'd be like, holy shit. Like that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like me right now. <laughs> exactly. And so, but because it's my personal story, I just kind of shrug it mm. off. I'm like, well, you know what? My whole life is going to be a final process. And these are just all the little ingredients that are added to it that are spicing it up, you know? And, um, <laughs> So I kind of discount a lot of what I've been through just because I'm like, well, you know, I believe in God and I think God wanted this to happen because he thinks I can handle it. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to figure out how to handle it was kind of my initial response um, to my mom dying. And then the other thing that I've really kind of leaned to and I've realized is the moments after my mom died, I was looking for perspective and Um, when I say perspective, I was like, holy shit, my life just got completely flipped upside down. I can't imagine it getting any worse than this, but for some reason I craved mentally to know that somebody had been through something worse and survived and and made Mm -hmm. it. And immediately I thought of like this interview that I saw on news a couple years ago where they were covering the, um, I I think it was the Rwandan genocide in Africa where you had two tribes of people that one morning that one tribe just decided to hack the other one completely up with machetes and everything else. I just remember there was a girl in there and she was about eight or nine years old and they had interviewed her and she had a smile on her face and she had like hid in a closet or something. Meanwhile, she peeked through the closet like cracks and she watched her entire family get butchered by this other tribe with machetes, like her mom, dad, grandparents, siblings, and somehow she survived. And somehow this girl still had like a smile on her face. And I don't know what it was, but my mind switched back to that. And I was like, boom, that's the perspective I need. Yeah. What I just went through, but it wasn't that bad. And somehow that girl still smiled. And I just, and ever since then I've craved perspective. Like I read books about people that have overcome crazy challenges in their life, whether it's death or being blown up by an IED and 
in battle or, you know, just, just that type of stories are what I, 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 I personally yearn for because I think it keeps my mind straight. Yeah, no, I completely understand that completely. I think that's what all, like I, I say this on the podcast so much, um, but that's the whole reason why the podcast is here. It's to show people that are in the depths of their grief that there is a future and, yeah. you know, people can get through anything. Like we're incredibly resilient um, and it's just amazing to hear those stories, isn't it? Um, so kind of going back then again, I suppose, obviously to your dad's passing. So you were what, 23 then? So really not long after your mum in the grand scheme of things at all. And I imagine kind of at a point in your life when you were kind of trying to, you know, you need a parent to kind of put you on track, right? Right. So, I mean, because my dad lived far away, he continued to live in Southern Nevada because that's where his work was. And I would still Mm. continue to see him summers, Christmases, um, spring break. And um, he retired um, and I was finishing up college at the time. And, um, he moved back to Northern Arizona. So he was actually closer to me than he had been in many, many, many years. Oh, wow. Um, so we went from being like a eight hour drive away to like a two hour drive. Um, yeah, such a difference. And he was like this old cowboy guy. He was 71 years old, still breaking horses. Um, he rolled his own cigarettes. Sometimes he'd have a little, little marijuana mixed in them sometimes. So he was, he was a little kooky, but, um, yeah, I saw, I saw the photos you sent of him to me and he just looks like a proper like American cowboy guy. Like that's, that's what I see like a stereotypical. Yeah, that's who he was. I mean, he, he would walk around with a dip of Copenhagen in one in his mouth. He drank coffee <laughs> with coffee grounds boiled in the water. So like when he would smile with wow. his full teeth, because all his all of his teeth got knocked out from bar fights and rodeoing when he was younger. But he would smile and you didn't know if you were looking at Cigarette tobacco, chewing tobacco, or coffee ground stuck in his teeth. But that was, <laughs> yeah, that was my dad, and um, I love him for it. He missed the boat on a lot of things as being a parent, you know, telling me to suck it up, and a lot of things now that I have perspective on being a parent myself. But um, he was incredible, and um, I had a very probably more of a friend relationship with my dad than what I needed. As far as like, I'm your dad. I'm yeah. a father figure. I'm gonna he was more, he was always like a pal to me, which, which I think was ultimately the downfall of my relationship. If there was a downfall in, in, in my relationship with him and and by no means, do I mean, it was bad. It was just looking no, back, I completely understand. absent I in your life, I suppose. So yeah, I, I just never had a, somebody that acted like a dad to me, you know, he was always like, mm-hmm. Hey, son, you want to go shoot guns? Cool. Let's do that. Hey son, you want to, you know, <laughs> go, let's go work on cars together. And I mean, that was it, you know, but yeah, um, yeah. So so he moved back to Arizona, and being the longtime smoker, tobacco chewer, tough guy he was. He and oh, and uh, when he worked in Nevada, he worked in a place called um, the Yucca Mountain Mine, where they he was part of this like mining group that bored this giant tunnel in a mountain for nuclear storage waste. Well, as they bore through the mountain, a lot of the people that worked on it were. Um, exposed to carcinogens mm-hmm. uh, stuff in the soil i i'm not really sure exactly what but um his lungs were basically trashed so he retired moved back to northern arizona he was rescuing horses breaking horses um he had a nice little 
piece of land on Route 66. And um, he was being asked to go to the VA medical center for uh, follow-ups, checkups on things that they saw on his lungs. And he kept pushing it off, pushing it off. I think he was in denial that his smoking was like killing him. And um, so it was my favorite time of year, March, you know, my mom died on March 29th and my dad's birthday was on March 17th. So I was visiting him for a hell of a month for you. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's, uh, it's, March and April, I, you know, it's, they, they come and go, but, um, yeah. so I went to visit him in March for his birthday and there was something off. Um, I know that he was more winded, had a hard time catching his breath than normal. You know, I celebrated his birthday, made him a cake, did all that stuff. Went back to Phoenix. Um, I was testing for the fire department at the time to get on. And, um, that's what my focus was. So, um, I said goodbye to him. And then about three or four days later, I get a phone call. Hey, your dad's in the hospital. I'm like, what, what happened? They said, well, he was out trying to go, um, driving through the forest and he got his truck stuck. And while trying to dig it out, he over exasperated himself and he collapsed. So now he's in Flagstaff regional hospital diagnosed with pneumonia. So they sent him to the VA, which is our veterans affair hospitals, um, located throughout the United States for anybody that was a military vet. And, um, they stabilized him there. And then they sent him down to the VA down in Phoenix in which I got to see him. And, um, it was the first time I'd seen him in a couple of weeks since he got sick, since they were bouncing him around from hospital to hospital, it was really hard for me to get to him. Um, but when I finally did see him, um, I walk into his, ho- his hospital room and he looks at me and the first thing he says, he says, son, I got the big C. And I go, what? And he goes, mm. I got cancer, lung cancer. And I said, okay, is it bad? And he said, bold face lie right to my face. He said, son, this isn't bad. They said it's going to be just fine. And uh, they're going to get me set up with some stuff and I can go back to my horses and life's going to be okay. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I I discounted it. I trusted my dad. I thought everything was going to be fine. Um, over the next couple weekends, I made an appointment to get up and see him. I helped him with fence posts, uh, helped him with his horses, hauling water, picking up hay, doing all that kind of stuff. And one of the weekends that I went to visit him, he was, uh, loading up his truck and going on a road trip. And I'm like, where the hell are you going? And he said, oh, there's a cancer hospital down in Tijuana, Mexico. 
and they can fix people because they offer medications that aren't offered in the U.S. And they 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 think they can cure my stage four cancer. And I was like, whoa, whoa, stage four? I go, I thought you said it was minor cancer and it was fine. And he said, ah, it's a little worse than I told you. So I'm like, all right. Now I was kind of mad at him. So he gets in the car, drives to Tijuana. He's there for about three days. And I get a phone call at 4.30 in the morning. And he's gasping for air. And he's begging me, son, can you come get me? I'm not, they can't treat me because his emphysema from smoking was so bad they couldn't treat his lung cancer. So I loaded up a backpack full of clothes and hauled ass to San Diego, made my way into Tijuana with a cousin of mine. And we got to his hospital and um, found him. When I walked in, I've never seen my dad struggling so bad. I mean, it it was unbearable to watch him struggling to breathe. Finally, they loaded him up with a whole bunch of steroids and um, prednisone and stabilized him. And I could see him finally start to breathe normal again. And I was just like, it was too much for me. Like, I just, I felt very selfish at the time. And I was like, I I don't ever want to see my dad suffer to breathe like that again. So I told him, I said, well, what's the deal? And then he confessed that he lied to me when he found out he had cancer. They actually told him, they said, Hey, if you're alive in 30 days or a month, feel free to make another doctor's appointment. Um, And then they were going to put him on palliative care through like hospice and stuff, but he didn't want to listen to it. So he kind of bucked all that thinking that he was going to fix himself. So um I had this moment with my dad where I, I looked at him and I said, dad, I love you to death. And I said, you know, I know you're worried about me, but I said, I'm a grown man now and I can't stand to see you suffer like that. And I said, you basically mm-hmm. have one of two choices and that's to miraculously be healed from lung cancer and emphysema or you're, you have to die. And, yeah. and I said, I don't, I don't want you to die, but this is the reality of the situation. And I told him, I said, dad, and I looked at him and I said, dad, I'm going to be okay. And the only time my dad's ever cried in front of me was um, at this moment when he acknowledged that. And he looked at me and he said, son, I needed to hear that. And you get me home to my horses. And I said, hell yeah, we can get you home to your horses. And so for the next um, week, we, um, worked getting him back across the border later that day, got him stabilized at a hospital in California, then got him flown back to Prescott. Um, I was able to drive up to Prescott wow. Hospital and see him uh, three nights in a row. And then they drove him, then, he get, then they released him back to his house. Um, they got him a hospital bed for his house. And I was supposed to drive up on a Friday afternoon or to spend the weekend with him. And I called him Friday when I got off work and I said, Dad, I'm coming up. And he said, no, you know what? He goes, you had a long week. You've been driving to and from Prescott. He's like, just come up in the morning, get a good night's sleep. I'll see you in the morning. So I said, okay, are you sure? And he said, yeah. Two and a half hours later, I got a phone call from my um, sister and a gal friend of my dad's that was at his house. And they said, hey, dad just died. So I never got to him again. So I grabbed my girlfriend and a couple friends and I drove up to Flagstaff. I got to say goodbye to his body. They, I I said, please don't, please don't remove him. I I need to see him. I need to touch him. I need Mm -hmm. to hug him. So forever I have that image pulling up into his house, knowing that he was dead and I could just see the hospital bed with the top of his head there. And 
I walked in and, you know, uh, all of a sudden you could just see his body with all the pain was removed. He, the wrinkles were gone. Everything looked peaceful. And I said goodbye to him. And then, um, kind of did the same thing as I did with my mom. I, we got him cremated and he wanted to have his ashes spread over Sycamore Canyon, which I think illegal uh, here in Arizona too. You just can't. <laughs> so my sisters and brother, my half sisters and brothers and I, which I'm not close to, we went out and we spread his ashes over Sycamore Canyon and, and that was it. Mm. So like, obviously you mentioned kind of how you dealt with the grief of your mom passing, you know, as a younger teenager, do you think that you dealt with your dad dying differently? Um, especially, you know, as it wasn't quite as sudden and obviously you were older then as well. And, you know, did you talk to people about it then or did you kind of follow a similar process, do you think? Um, I followed the exact same process as I did my mom. Um, mm. I had a I had an amazing girlfriend at the time who, um, as my dad died from lung cancer, her best friend was diagnosed with lupus and had a massive stroke like three weeks later and then she died. So she lost her best friend and my dad within like a month of each other. And, you know, we really leaned on each other um, Mm. a lot during that time period. And I don't think I really leaned on her as much as she leaned on me just because I tried to be the tough guy. I tried to, I've already been through this. I've lost my mom. Losing my dad's no big deal. Yeah. Meanwhile, inside I was just like, just crumbling. Um, but again, so, I turned to the perspective thing and I just, I needed perspective and I found perspective and I ran and I exercised and pushed my so way what through. Is it, what is it that's kind of changed that then? Because obviously you said to me before that you've obviously, you know, you've taken more now to sharing more about your losses and um, obviously you've kind of, you set up your own blog as well, right? So do you think this is now you acknowledging your grief later on in your life and kind of just really sitting with it a little bit more? Yeah, I think so. I think I finally, one, I think I've kind of just opened up my ears a little bit to what people have been telling me. They're like, cause so many people have said, Hey man, you need to share your story. You could help other people. Um, mm. I've had the opportunity. There's a, there's an organization here in Arizona called stepping stones of hope. And I've been a volunteer for them a couple times. Um, several times and they do grief counseling for five years old all the way up to adults and they offer teen oh, camps kids camps um, young adult camps spouse camps um, all throughout the year I think they have like 14 different camps they do or something like that oh that sounds incredible um, it is and I mean so I volunteered with there and it just started kind of opening up and I was like holy crap I got a bunch of stuff in here that I got to unpack and then mm. I started you know, heeding other people's advice. Hey, write your story, your story down, which I've been writing it down, but I don't really know what to do with it now. Cause I'm not a writer. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what it's worth getting out there, but it's been therapeutic for me to write it down and maybe it'll just be something yeah, that one day. I don't know. Um, but I think the other thing too is, is just as an adult, I can look back and I can see all the mistakes I made in my grief process. And I think it's a tragedy if anybody follows kind of my path because it was a hard path to do alone when there are so many resources out there now there's things like this podcast I mean here's a group of people that created something I mean you think of a club you think of it's like oh a fun outdoorsy (laughs) soccer club I mean club you think of inclusion other like-minded people and it's like 
wow, I can gravitate towards that because there's other people like, and none of that existed in 1996 when my mom died. And in 2003, when my dad died, there really wasn't much there either. And so it's, it's, um, sorry, 2004 when my dad died, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, I think it's just time to try to do something now that I have kids. I want to be an example for my kids. Um, I want to help other people. I, I, I want to let other people know that, and it, you're going to go through some tough times in life, but it's not the end, you know? Mm, preach it. Yeah. And I talk about talking about your kids, actually, have you spoken to your kids about your parents? You know, <laughs> it's one thing that I've been 100% honest with them from the very, very beginning. Um, That's amazing. Cause I, Cause I have a, well, I have a, it's very complex. I mean, so I moved in with one family right after my mom died. I lived with them for about two and a half years and there were some things that just weren't working out um, on both my end and their end. So I, I assume all the responsibility in that um, and I no longer live with them. So I ended up moving in with another family and finished out high school and, and their, that, that family is absolutely tremendous. Um, mm. I'm very, very close to them. They have a, a son that's my age, a daughter that's a couple years younger and as far as my kids know, that's Nana and Papa and Uncle Cody and Aunt oh, lovely. And even though I lived with them for one year in high school, my senior year, and they've just cultivated me. They've been there for me. They've been a, a huge pillar for me, a rock. Um, they've provided guidance in what a family structure looks like because I was raised by divorced parents. Um, they've continued kind of the work ethic that my mom instilled in me with you know, you work hard for the things you want. And, um, but since they're not my real parents, (laughs) I didn't want my kids growing up. And then all of a sudden one day I'm like, Hey, you know, Nana and Papa, by the way, (laughs) want your real grandparents. And then, yeah, that makes complete sense. Because I just feel like kids are very smart and they're intelligent. And I don't think we give them enough credit, especially with these grief camps that I volunteer at people, I think are afraid to talk to kids at a super mature level. And they, they need to be faced with truths earlier than I think some people think, because I think everybody wants to shelter and protect. So um, I had a conversation, my daughter, she's seven and um, you know, she understands and I haven't gone into depth, like how my mom died or that kind of stuff. But I'm like, you know, she knows that Nana and Papa aren't her real grandparents. And she always says, she's yeah. like, no, I really wish my real grandma and grandpa were here because I know that they would spoil me and they would love me. And, and it's, and I'm like, yeah, I wish they were here too. Cause I know, I know that would happen. So, Aww. so they know. Um, and on my mom's birthday, we always um, say a special prayer. Like we'll um, sometimes we'll get a flower and we'll put it um, with my mom. I have a, a little urn thing that my dad got me. That's uh, in the shape of a dolphin. It's a brass thing that, um, sometimes my daughter, like on my mom's birthday, we'll grab a, a rose and then we'll put it by there and just say a special prayer that day to grandma. And oh, that's that lovely. Mm. So obviously now at this point in your kind of grief journey and obviously, you know, the whole kind of grief communities and what there is out there has changed so much since you originally lost your mom and then your dad. Do you think that the stigma 
attached to being a male and grieving has changed since you were younger or do you think it's still kind of inherently there and there is like a kind of internal thing for males to feel like they can't express their grief um I think as a society we're definitely more open to letting people express feelings grieve a little bit more um, I know like if you're a millennial age type, you kind of get a bad stigma on you that you're already just like kind of, they're not as strong or as tough as like generations before them, which I think is kind of a, which is kind of a tragedy because, um, it's an improvement, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. I mean, being a supervisor on a fire department, you know, I can, I can say yes to both of those. You know what I mean? Like I, I yeah, see the, yeah. and the negatives with, with certain, you know, generations, I guess. Um, yeah. Cause I know like, if you look back at the world, you know, they can they call it the greatest generation, you know, all the world war two vets and stuff. I mean, what they witnessed and went through, I mean, they were all raised during the great depression and then they went on and fought in world war two. And then they came back and they internalized a lot of the death and you know, just craziness that they saw as, you know, uh, military. And then we came back and we're so wildly different from that generation. You know what I mean? Um, and those guys were like, Hey, you don't talk about it. And that's kind of where my dad grew up. And that's kind of where I was raised from. Um, and I still, I still see a lot of people that are just like, why are you, I've had people ask me, they go, why are you talking about this now? And I'm like, well, I don't know, because maybe it needs to be talked about. Maybe other people can get something out of it. And but people will question it and be like, what's wrong? And and honestly, I, about a year and a half ago, I, I finally went and I went and saw a counselor because I just wanted to say, like, hey, this happened to me. Did I leave any stones unturned? Is there anything that I mm. missed in the process? Like, is it? Yeah, is, I got that. Is there something about what I went through affecting current relationships that I have right now? Is there things that I should watch out for? Cause I don't want to negatively affect my relationship with my wife, my kids, other people, yeah. because maybe I got something, just something that's buried underneath a rock. That's just doing away at me. That's, you know, affecting me. So it was good to go through that process, even though it was so many years later. Mm, yeah. So true. And I commend you for that. I mean, I don't think it's ever too late to talk to people about, what you've gone through like what's the point if you want to talk about it and ask people questions and kind of open, open up that conversation I don't think there should ever be a time limit on that so I think that's amazing um I'm just down to kind of my last two questions for you now which yeah. kind of like are my big ones and my favorite things to ask <laughs> um okay. it's do you think that it's changed the way that you go about your life and your attitude towards it I know that you've kind of mentioned this um but obviously it's just, you know, kind of condensing it for, for the end of the podcast. Yeah. I mean, as our lives eventually someday will come to an end, we'll, we're going to look back and see all the different things that we've experienced in our life. And you, that is more, I think in the forefront of my mind than a lot of other people, because you really don't know when that day is going to come. It could come tomorrow when you're driving to work. Um, it could come 50 years from now. And you don't know. And I think when you experience death at a young age, 
I think it, it enlightens you to appreciate life a little bit more. You're going to take a little bit more time to smell the roses. You're going to take a little bit more time to acknowledge things. And if you can rebound from the traumatic death of a loved one, especially a parent in a positive light, um, you're going to be stronger for it. And I think like for me, I'm, I, I self-admit this all the time that I am so focused on my life and time with my kids that it's could almost be, almost be viewed as like a negative just because it's in the forefront of my mind of what I went through. And I'm like, I want to leave no doubt someday that when, when I die, that my kids know 100% that I loved them. And, and I cherish every moment with them. And my whole, like, I just constantly think about what experiences can I give them? Because I realize I've gotten where I'm at because of the experiences and upbringing my mom instilled in me. So mm. you know, single mom working four to five jobs. She made me get my first job when I was eight. I've always been a workhorse. She was a workhorse. I look back on it and I'm like, wow, where did I get that from? And I'm like, I got it from my mom. I got <laughs> that experience of her and her influence on my life. Mm. Um, and they, they, they live on through you with that as well, which I love. Exactly. I mean, we are, you know, somebody told me this a long time ago. They said, you can sit there and tell your kids how to drive, but guess how your kids are going to drive. They're going to drive the way they've witnessed you drive over your shoulder mm. their entire life growing up. So mm. when you can sit there and tell them not to tailgate, but if you're a tailgater, they're going to tailgate because they <laughs> do that your whole life. Right. So yeah. having that, like just kind of beat into the forefront of my brain constantly, like I'm just, like I said, it's almost a negative that I'm so hyper aware of it, but it's just like, what are we going to do? Cause, cause all I can do is they can take away your toys. They can take away your car. They can take away your house, your clothes, everything else. But what they can take away is your memories. So yeah, what are we going to do to make those the best possible? Mm-hmm. And that's basically how I, I live my life now. It's like, I don't, is it really important to fix up the house or is it more important to get a travel trailer and go see national parks and see some amazing oh, stuff? I love that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love that. Mm, uh, completely and I think isn't it amazing to think that yes like obviously you know your parents dying is such a tragedy but that's changed you in such a way that you are now influencing your kids lives in such a positive way because they've they're going to have all these amazing experiences and you know and like precious moments with you as a family that they might may not have got had your life been all roses and rainbows you know I think it's amazing just how it just goes down like a chain of events and but it actually affects people's lives positively in such a tragic way it just astounds me <laughs> yeah I mean I agree with you 100 <laughs> percent mm. <laughs> um well my final question to you now then is what would you say to other people specifically to kind of younger males who are grieving the loss of their parents um, it sucks and it's gonna suck and there's no getting around it. Um, once it's happened, it's happened and we have to just figure out what that next step forward is going to be from, from here. And mm. we have to take that next step 
if you just stand still, not moving forward, you're going to, you're going to dwell on it. You're going to let it eat away at you. And, and there's nothing wrong with going through the grieving process. That's it. That's the other big thing is, you know, there's, there's several steps to it, you know, acceptance and denial and anger. And I, I forget what all the other ones are, but, um, you got to let those process. And for guys, I think physically, there's a lot of ways for guys to, and girls, um, to, to help physically process some of those emotions. Like if you're angry, there's nothing wrong with smashing a, a pillow or um, going out and running a few miles. There's nothing wrong with going out and exercising and getting that anger out because you can, you can funnel it to a direction and help you process um, while at the same time, kind of improving your physical state, which inherently will help with the grieving depression process, which has been proven time and time again, that people that exercise have less, I think, depression and anxiety disorders and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's one of those things that we have, and we have the ability to, um, when I volunteered at those camps, we have a grocery store that donates a bunch of old vegetables and fruit. And then we go out to this empty field in the forest with baseball bats and we soft toss this nasty old fruit and vegetables. And these kids get to just smash it to pieces. And you get to see that release of the frustration, the anger of the loss. And pretty soon, maybe some of them start crying while they're doing it because it's it's that that tough on them, but then pretty soon they're laughing about it. And you watch that kind of that change just by going through that. And I know, and I know just for men where we, we think differently than, than, than women were, you know, we're two com two completely complex, different machines mentally in a lot of ways that, um, you gotta be willing to let your guard down. You gotta be willing to let it process. Don't be afraid of counseling. Don't be afraid to reach out and say, Hey, I need help, but also don't be afraid to, you know, find your own perspective, find, find things that are going to help you take that next step forward in the grieving process, because the days are, the days are long, but the weeks and months and years are short in the long run. And before you know it, you're going to hit that one month anniversary, that one year anniversary of when they died. And you're going to say, holy crap, how did I get past that? I mean, it just feels like it was still yesterday that they died, but every step you take forward, is a step in the right direction. So true, so true. Thank you so much. That's brilliant advice. I uh, so appreciate you taking the time to come onto the podcast as well. I hope it helps. And hey, thank you. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it was. Thank you so much. Um, you know, it's been really interesting to hear your story and to kind of hear where you're at with it now and stuff. I think you know, it's gonna be really useful to so many people. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Dead Prank Club podcast. I so hope that you've enjoyed it and you found some comfort in the stories that you've heard here today. As always, I would just like to remind you that neither myself nor any of the guests that come onto the show are healthcare professionals. Therefore, if you do find yourself struggling with your grief, I highly recommend that you seek out professional help, whether that be from your GP or from the numerous charities out there that are available to you. Please also remember that you can reach out to us at any time on Instagram at DPC Podcast, on Facebook at The Dead Parent Club, 
and you can email us at dbcpodcast at hotmail.com. Alternatively, you can check out our website where a resources page is also available at www.dpcpodcast.co.uk. Also, please don't hesitate to contact me if you want to get involved in the podcast in any way, whether that be coming onto the show or to write a blog for us as well. Coming onto a podcast isn't your thing. Thank you so much once again for listening and we'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.